Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. I'm really glad to be here and, and to read, tell you guys a little bit more about uh, about our work uh, and actually in this case I thought even though we obviously do a lot of work on uh, Parkinson's disease I will primarily focus on a different topic which actually was asked to in this breaking uh, seminar series but I think it's also quite important because that's obviously the other main application of stem cells which is in the context of disease modeling and I'll get much more into the details what I mean by that. Just to get started off, I want to start with a disclosure statement because uh, we are at the stage, obviously, where some of that work gets translated. And I've been a scientific co-founder of a company called Plurax Therapeutics that has licensed our dopamine differentiation technique. And even though I don't hold a position there, I serve as a consultant and have research support. Now, this is really not relevant for 95% of, of my presentation. The only part where it is relevant is this one slide that I'm going to just show you here for People are really interested where we stand right now with this effort. And so just to give you a little bit of an update that indeed we got just a few months ago the, the approval from the FDA to move forward with our phase one, phase two A study. And actually even more recent, so that's indeed breaking news just yesterday, it was announced that we also got basically the green light in Health Canada for the same technology. And again, for, for those really interested in that, there are two recent papers that we've published on the one hand on the, the technology, which is a new differentiation protocol to make dopamine neurons, a major update since our initial Crixadal story. And then the actual uh, study that uses the clinical grade stem cell product of dopamine neurons in various animal studies as kind of a proof of concept, how you really go from a research site to an actual product that has now a clinical approval towards at least going into phase one, two, a study. But what I mentioned again today, I'm going to have a diff quite a different topic, and that really deals with the idea of using stem cells for disease modeling. And I want to touch on two main uh, breaking news stories, you could call them, that basically came out very recently from the lab. One really deals with this question of how do we model not just one cell type, let's say a dopamine neuron, but how do we model the interaction, glial neuronal interactions within cells and within disease, and do that reliably. And the second one, how do we study many genes and their impact on disease? And I think those are two examples that might be broadly relevant for people who want to use stem cells for disease modeling, independent of which neural disease target that they're actually going to pursue. And at the very beginning, the first step is always to actually differentiate the pluripotent cells into cells of interest. And as Evan alluded to, to us, I mean, we may be best known in the lab for developing the dual SMAD inhibition protocol, which is this very widely used strategy where you can use just two inhibitors to convert pluripotent stem cells into CNS lineages and from there into various sublineages. And more recently, we've shown that you can further modify that to get access to most, if not all, ectodermal lineages. So not only the CNS or the PNS, but even certain uh, other ectodermal lineages. And the long-term goal of this effort is that you can now one by one generate in your collection the cell types that you might want to have for studying various diseases, or to use those cell types for actual regenerative medicine for cell replacement. And so that tree is constantly growing, and it's kind of the concept, the initial concept, making a very precise cell type, starting with pluripotent cells. Now, we all know that obviously cells usually don't grow in isolation, and therefore we are kind of excited to see that the same technology can be adapted also to 3D organoid conditions, where instead of just doing kind of spontaneously differentiating organoid technology that was basically pioneered particularly by the Knoblich lab initially and obviously adopted by many groups now. We can use the same dual smart inhibition, wind inhibition and other strategies to make ventral and dorsal forebrain cells, fuse them together. Or you can also then use some of those strategies to pattern the cells in situ. That's, for example, a study recently where we actually put an organizer, not just as a small molecule, but actually the organizer into an organoid to basically pattern the cells all the way from the forebrain 
to the hypothalamus within one single organoid. And again, this is an area that's very exciting. Many groups are working in general on how to bring organoid technology to the next level. And it really allows us to get much more complex culture systems to work. But that complexity is obviously also a challenge because it makes it very difficult to do that very reproducibly and to know exactly what each cell does to each other cell. So therefore, we really recently got really interested in using kind of a hybrid system, which was inspired by our clinical work, in fact, where we make literally 10 billion dopamine neurons. We can cryopreserve them, we can use them, we can transplant them, and so forth. So the question is, can we do that not only for dopamine neurons, but for neurons in general, but also for astrocytes and microglia doing that at scale? And then instead of making traditional organoids, we actually kind of re-engineer the cell composition to mimic what might happen in the brain, but starting with defined cell types. Now for neurons, we did that for many neurons, but what I'm going to focus on here is particularly cortical neurons, where we use a protocol that was developed by Gabriele Ciceri in the lab, which is a variation of dual smart and wind inhibition, where you can make cortical neurons extremely precisely, and they are all born over a period of about five days in a culture dish, and if you do it under those conditions, you actually have no precursors left at that stage, purely with extrinsic factors. These neurons can, in isolation, mature nicely, morphologically. For example, you can label individual neurons and show that they get more and more a complex pyramidal neuron-like morphology over maturation time. And you can also show that they get transcriptionally more and more mature in vitro, mimicking some of the transcription maturation you would see in vivo, such as, for example, in the Allen Brain Atlas BrainSpan database. So we clearly have good access to those neurons. We can make them in scale and again very precisely. So the question is, what about astrocytes? And there came again a study to help that we published also already very recently on that. And that tried to solve one additional problem for making astrocytes. So it turns out astrocytes are obviously very critical in the brain. And they are born developmentally from basically a neural stem precursor cell. But the cell switches its competency at very early stages from just making neurons to actually at the later stage starting to make astrocytes and in some cases making oligodendrocytes. Now this switch within that neural stem cell occurs in a mouse in about seven days of development and that's clearly manageable in a dish. Now in human the same switch can take up to six months and so therefore it has kind of hampered to get mature astrocytes, mature neural stem cells that can easily make mature astrocytes effectively. And so recently we kind of developed a trick to overcome that where we figured out that one factor is called NFIA can be expressed just transiently for five days and it basically moves the clock forward here all the way to the stage when the cells become competent to be differentiated into astrocytes. So it's different from the traditional programming approach where you take a transcription factor, just make it into an astrocyte, which is also an interesting approach. But what you actually do is you just program to become glial competent. The advantage of that is that they are still precursors that can be further expanded and they can be naturally differentiated into astrocytes using factors like LIF and other factors to then have really fully functional astrocytes. Those astrocytes develop beautiful morphologies and they have the transcriptional profiles that you would expect of astrocytes and also functionally they can be co-cultured with neurons and for example allow us to now make very mature neurons in these co-culture conditions from human pluripotent stem cells. Again, for the aficionados, that's one of the problems in the field, that they usually don't develop a very mature resting membrane potential, but you can achieve that in co-culture much more readily. So clearly, that means we can also now make astrocytes quite quickly and at large scale. So the last cell type we wanted to generate for this co-culture model to study neuroinflammation were microglia. Now, microglia are yet another cell type, and they are very interesting because they don't really come from the nervous system at all. And actually, as recently shown, they don't really come from the adult hematopoietic system either. They actually come from an embryonic, primitive uh, uh, hematopoietic precursor that comes from the yolk sac, then develops into a pre-macrophage cell, and then starts populating the brain very early in development. In fact, those microglia cells populate the brain even earlier than 
you have even astrocytes or oligodendrocytes. So with that knowledge in hand, we went back to the literature to see so how they are really specified in the yolk suck. There were beautiful uh, studies from Gordon Keller looked at wind, the role of wind signaling, particularly in these decisions early on. And it basically allowed us to develop a protocol that is based on the combination of wind activation for exactly 18 hours, followed by wind inhibition for up to three days to trigger those precursors that have been described in vivo to represent those primitive hemogenic precursors like KDR1, KDR positive, CD235A positive, that can be further differentiated. And I just want to point out the part that we were maybe most struck in this protocol, which is the precision of timing. So if we go from this activation of wind signaling to inhibition of wind signaling, not at 18 hours, but you do it at 12 hours, you actually don't get the cells at three days later. If you do it yet another six hours later, they also don't pop up. So it's an extremely precise window where you need to switch from wind activation to wind inhibition to get those cells. Now it turns out those cells are actually important because if you sort them out, those are the cells that go on to make these early pre-macrophage cells. If you take the negative ones, they don't make any. Now, fortunate for us, actually, even if you just simply have the right protocol timing-wise, but you don't sort, you still get those later cells because our conditions then allow those cells to expand. So you don't actually need to sort, which is important for scalability, but you need to have the right window for inducing those precursors. These cells then go on again to make these early pre-macrophage precursors, and you can watch that process now with single cell sequencing happening in front of your eyes. So this is work that we did together with Stan up here, where we mapped those early precursors, where we can study the hemogenic endothelium that then goes on to make these erythromyeloid precursors that have three fate decisions that they can undergo, which we can map with this what's called trajectory mapping using a software tool called Palantir. The three lineages are on the one hand that they can make uh, erythro erythroid cells or red blood cells, they can make megakaryocytes, or they can make primitive pre-macrophages. And so what we then see is we can not only study those lineages occur, depending on media conditions, we can, for example, cut off the lineage that goes towards red blood cells, and we can see how they progress through that stage in a temporal manner. For example, we can look at the differentiation potential that basically decreases the more differentiated they get. Or we can map what's called pseudo-time to basically have the transcriptional time towards each of those lineages. And that time is kind of a cool system because you can now go back to the embryo and see that this pseudo-time in a dish maps to actual transcriptional profiling of those early microglial premacrophage precursors being developing in a mouse embryo. And I just point here to two stages shown here. So if the pseudo-time from about 0.1 to 0.5, you see that you see primarily activation of the so-called EMP signatures. If you look at the later pseudo-time, you find the activation of the pre-macrophage signature. So suggesting that indeed in a dish we go through the exact same stages that the cells go through in an embryo. You can further map that actually, this is not a data set where basically all cells of an embryo were uh, single cell sequenced up to the stage of about 8.5 of development, literally all cells. And you now see, can our signatures for each of those lineages, hemogenic endothelium, EMP, can they be mapped onto that trajectory of all the cells? And how do they map with the endogenous cells? And you find again a remarkable correlation with regard to recreating those fates. And we can also then use that tool to map the developmental window, and we find that what we're actually mapping is E.5 in mouse development, which obviously in human would be a later stage, but it's the equivalent stage when these cells, in fact, are born and go on the journey to start populating the brain. Now, in our case, obviously, we're not going to have them populate the brain. We're going to populate them the dish. Actually, we're going to co-culture them with neurons. And you can do that on the one hand directly taking those very early precursors. And again, compared to many other protocols out there, this is probably the fastest and maybe the, the, the most directed way to get those early lineages. You can directly take those cells, put them on neurons, and more than 95% of them turn into microglial cells if you do that directly. And if you grow them for about another week under pre-macrophage conditions, it's in fact literally 100% of them turning into microglial cells very, very quickly with uh, these beautiful morphologies 
and with the transcriptional profiles that correspond to, to, to again, microglial precursor cells. And also with their functional properties, for example, they can phagocyte those uh, simosan beads, which are yeast-coated uh, beads, and contrast, for example, astrocyte control cells don't do that. Now, you can also follow them in a dish. It's kind of fun to see how they behave, because microglial cells, they don't really migrate so much, but they basically survey the environment. And as you can see, hopefully here, they actually do that, where they constantly explore with their processes the environment. And here shown just those microglial cells alone. And if you look here very carefully, you see that they're kind of bubbling around in the dish everywhere, surveying the whole culture dish full of neurons under those conditions. So clearly that would mean we have now also a very good way to make very large numbers of those microglial cells in a precise way. And therefore we now put everything together. And so the key first step there was really to question how to put them together at what ratios. We spend a lot of time with regard to media, which media is optimal for that, which ratios you use. And we came up with a ratio shown here that we chose because after one week later, actually one to two weeks later, the contribution that you get then from each cell type mimics pretty much exactly what you expect, for example, in the cortex. And so we get the same ratios once the cells stabilize, for example, the astrocytes, they proliferate a little bit and they slow down, to then getting again these ultimate ratios that mimic the brain ratios. Now, this was very important because if you actually have the wrong ratios, you get spontaneous activation of those glial cells. But if you do it right and with the right media conditions and so forth, that was maybe one of the most challenging parts. On the baseline conditions, you get pretty much no activation of inflammatory cytokines, even though these cells are grown in 2D on plastic which is shown here. So these are some of those inflammatory cytokines, extremely low levels of expression in triculture or in, in, in monoculture and so forth. Now, if you do that after LPS stimulation, which is an inflammatory stimuli in this case, you see that it goes by thousandfold up. So meaning no baseline activation, but very high level of activation of neuroinflammatory pathways after stimulation. Now, we were actually more interested not in those kind of artificial activation, but more in, in molecules that we think might be directly relevant to disease, such as, for example, complement C3. And complement C3 has to be particularly Im implicated in the context of Alzheimer's disease, that it might be involved in marking synapses to be apparently phagocytosed in AD patients. And this might potentially be correlated with the cognitive loss, because then, again, you start losing more and more synapses marked by C3. So when we looked at C3 in our culture system, we find something very intriguing too. In this case, actually, we find nearly no C3 expression if you just look in the neurons, in the co-culture of astrocytes and neurons, or co-culture of microglia neurons. But if you put all three together, now you start to get see a signal. So that's what we call potentiation, meaning it's not just simply you add up all the complement produced by each cell, but these cells actually talk to each other and stimulate each other to produce complementing those conditions. And this is also true under LPS, just a little bit more amplified. Now, the big question now is, I mean, how does this crosstalk work? Who talks to whom? Who produces which complement? And even in vivo, that has been really somewhat of a mystery and not very easy to study. Now, here you can actually study that quite easily because you just simply make knockout cells for C3. And if you do that, you can now say, okay, what happens here in this blue bar? For example, if I knock out complement C3 from the microglia, and you seem to lose all complement produced. So we know that actually microglia not only produces complement, that's why it goes down, but it's also important itself in a, in a, in a feed-forward loop to stimulate complement production and to stimulate complement production from astrocytes. Because what you can see here now is that if you now knock out C3 complement in the astrocytes and compare it to the triculture, otherwise exactly the same. So same ratio, same number of cells, everything wild type except the astrocytes being C3 knockout, you lose nearly half of the complement. And that's very interesting because if you go back over here, absolute no complement produced by the astrocytes alone. So there must be the microglia that instruct basically now the astrocytes to produce complement. And again, the same is true with LPS. The next question is, can we do that with maybe a more physiological stimulus than LPS? What about actually an AD 
related stimulus, such as the isogenic stem cell line for the uh, APP Swedish mutation. So if you, for example, make just simply the neurons using this Chicheri protocol I showed you at the beginning, just the neurons alone, we can show that, maybe not too surprisingly, but we can detect that they produce a beta, and they produce higher levels when they have these Swedish mutations compared to wild-type control. So what we are curious is now, what happens if we just swap in, swap out, either the mutant or the isogenic control neuron in a triculture system? Otherwise, everything is the same. All the other cells are wild-type. Just see, can they sense, basically, be in the presence of an AD neuron? And what you can see is, indeed, they can sense it because they make nearly twice as much C3 complement, and we know neurons don't make the complement, so they must get triggered in our triculture system. And so what's, again, very intriguing is now ask the question, so who, again, produces that complement? And again, one intriguing possibility seems to be if you now compare the difference in C3 complement if you have a wild-type AD neuron or the, the isogenic AP neuron that has basically the Swedish mutation, you see this difference. And this difference is exactly the same as if you now have, again, the AD neuron, but in this case, you don't produce complement from the astrocytes. So the the, the, the hypothesis here is that actually the difference here is produced by C3, that's produced by astrocytes, in response to a stimulus that is mediated presumably by the microglia, but is mediated in the presence of that neuron. So again, we can make fairly sophisticated interactions that we can study under those conditions using those knockout and very precise stem cell models. There are, again, other examples. For example, what we have been able to show is not a very interesting molecule is C1QA that is clearly also disease-related. Because if you look at these Western blots, you compare the APP Swedish condition, again, the neuron, versus the wild type, you find, indeed, that overall you have more C1Q produced if you have those neurons present. But again, the neurons themselves produce nothing, so something gets triggered, which is, in this case, C1Q. What's also interesting is you can figure out that actually, in this case, there seems to be a feedback loop. Because if you have the perfect triculture system, each of the cells being able to produce C3, they are actually able to somewhat dampen the response of C1Q production if they are C3 competent. You can see that also on this side, actually, even on the wild-type condition, this correlation seems to exist. And that goes away if you lose either the triculture, you have only co-culture, or you lose complement in either the astrocytes or the microglia. So it's, again, a very intriguing interaction. There was just very recent work, actually, where that was previously not known. Some of those data were actually confirmed in vivo in some of the relevant mouse models, again, indicating that what we can study here as really the physiologically relevant in vivo-like interactions in a very defined triculture system that can be scaled and, again, modeled in a very intriguing way to then, again, study those interaction networks. And the many questions left, obviously, is what are the signals from the APP neuron that goes to the microglia to produce eventually more C3 and so forth. But we think we have, again, the tool now to dissect that uh, under those conditions. So for this first story, really, what I tried to show you is that we have now a new way to make human microglia that could be widely useful because, again, it's a very precise, very timed way where you can massive conversion Early, micro, early EMP cells that then go on to make microglial cells. We have developed with those cells a strike culture system. I showed you those conditions for cortical neuroinflammation, but we have actually projects in the lab that we use it also for ALS modeling with spinal motor neurons and with spinal astrocytes, or for PD as part of a big uh, consortium, the, the so-called ASAP consortium that uses strike culture model to now model neuroinflammation in Parkinson's disease. And again, I hopefully convince you that we can indeed study crosstalk under those conditions and that we have very intriguing results with regard to both C1Q and C3 and their inter interaction. So this gets me then to, to the second story where we try to solve a slightly different problem. So not really the interaction of different cell types necessarily, but more the interaction or study of many different genotypes. So the way we want to do that is in the context of, of, of diseases such as autism, where this is particularly critical. 
because with the advance of better and better sequencing tools, we get larger number of genes that are potentially associated with autism or autism spectrum disorders. And we're also getting better and better at diagnosing autism in the clinic. But we are still pretty poor at understanding what really goes wrong in those human cells, what mechanistically drives eventually the clinical phenotype, and to do that in a, in a reasonably efficient manner. Now, the way that it has been studied was primarily uh, with those uh, basically rare mutations with a strong phenotypic effect, where then mouse models were established, which was quite a productive effort to at least see what goes wrong with regard to neurodevelopment in those mouse models. Now, we learned quite a bit of, from those studies, uh, again, what can go wrong and where things go wrong and when they go wrong. For example, there is evidence, even so, obviously, many of those genes act many regions of the brain, there seems to be particularly preponderance of expression and functional differences in the prefrontal cortex region, and also very high level in the cerebellum, which was also somewhat of a surprise in some of those studies. Now, the other uh, thing we learned is that there are at least two different developmental stages where some of those genes act. One is very early during the phase of neurogenesis, where they might model epigenetic uh, regulators, chromatin remodeling, and so forth. And the later stage, that's more related to channel and synaptic function. So the question then is, again, with, with those understanding, let's say, involvement of prefrontal cortex, an early stage of neurogenesis, one can come up with hypotheses and say, for example, is it then true that some of those genes that have been discovered genetically could be involved in autism-related mutations that perturb prefrontal cortex neurogenesis. So you could now go to those hundreds of different genes and, like it was done in the past, make more individual mutations in those mice and, again, do that with a, a team one by one, each lab at a time. Now, if you really want to do that for all the genes, obviously you need to have huge consortia at a very large cost, and at the end you still have done that only in the context of a mouse brain. So the question is, obviously, can we do that in human cells, and there's a lot of hope and promise that pluripotent stem cells will be part of that solution. Now, for many of you obviously work with human pluripotent stem cells, it's actually not much easier to sometimes study that in the human pluripotent stem cells, and you have these basically incubators full of dishes if you want to study all those genes, and you need, again, very large consortia and teams to really understand the function of each of those genes in a systematic manner with all the controls and so forth. So again, how could we maybe try to shortcut that a little bit? And the person in the lab who really tried to address this issue is Gustav Sedequist, a very uh, talented grad student, who basically said, okay, we can basically think of those various uh, patients with those genetic mutations as kind of a, a group of patients, like nearly a, a community or a village. And we can make relatively easily with CRISPR technique each of their mutations. Or we can also make iPS cells from those patients. So that part is actually not so difficult, can be done reasonably efficiently. So then the question is, what are we going to do with all those lines? Because each of those lines would take a lot of work, sometimes it takes you two, three years now before you understand what a mutation does in those human stem cell lines. You need to adapt each line to the right conditions and so forth. So his idea was, why don't we just pull all the lines together? Because what pooling might allow, on the one hand, Clearly, you get away from the many, many dishes. You need only one dish where you have the whole village in the dish. But at the same time, it might actually reduce variability because one of the main drivers of variability in our hands, and again, we differentiated stem cells for more than 20 years, is actually cell density. And by definition, if you have them in the same dish, they're going to be at the same density. Now, if you do that, then obviously you have a problem, which is how are you going to actually now make that work? Because now you have all those cells. Who do you know who is who? So the idea is, in this case, that you would have something like 30 different lines, that each of them has the very specific patient mutation that you would want to study, and you pull them together. And now you would take the cells and differentiate them in the cell type you're interested in. Let's say cortical precursor. So the way then Gustav uh, thought we could actually do that is we just have to have the hypothesis what could go wrong in an autism-related disorder. For example, could it be that the neural stem precursor cells have differential growth? If that's the case, I can just take a sample of those pooled cells at time point zero, where they should be, if it's 30 line, each of them should be represented by 3% in the pool, and maybe at time point one, which is maybe 20 days later, and see whether some cell lines now grow more than others if they have this autism-related mutation. 
And so comparing those two representations, I should be figured out which phenotype, which genotype relates to the phenotype. You can do that not only with growth, you can do it with cell sorting. You can sort out neurons versus progenitors, see that they are differentially represented. Or you can treat them with a drug, see which of the genotype responds to a drug or to a developmental signal. You can actually do that quite effectively, and there's one very simple readout that we've used, which is called digital droplet PCR. It's a very sensitive technique where you can detect very low abundance of basically DNA, specific uh, basically changes in the DNA uh, using this technique. And depending on again how many droplets you run, usually you have a sensitivity of at least about 1 in 10,000. So if it now drops from 3% to 1 in 10,000, you can still detect that clone. But obviously, you know now it's like 100 or 1,000 fold lower. Okay, so we basically try and see, so can we now do a proof of concept? And the initial proof of concept was just simply saying, okay, we are interested in this context in wind signaling. What happens if we just simply do a loss of function of beta-catenin and we actually then sort for levels of catenin just simply in the pluripotent cells, for example? If you do that, we develop the sorting technique. You see that about 80% that have high levels, about 12-13% that have lower levels. And then we just simply look in the low fraction or in the high fraction, what happens to a beta-catenin loss of function cell line. And you can see that this is super sensitive at picking up those lines. So basically what we have here is not the difference in gene expression, nor that we detect, we detect the difference in allele frequency. That here there's pretty much none of the beta-catenin cell line mutant ones. They are all over here, and that's represented in this ratio. Now, we want to do that, again, not just with a few genes, but we want to do it systematically with genes relevant for autism. And so what Gustav did at the time, and again, when he started that, it was about 2017, that time he used all the genes that are defined as high-confidence de novo mutations related to autism. He found about 50 genes. By now, it's probably about 70 or 80 genes. And then he took them through a number of filters. So first, he actually checked whether those genes are also expressed. In Brainspan, this is again this database from the Allen Institute. They look during fetal development, are these genes even expressed? So they have a chance to see them in our cells. And also in some of the stem cell differentiation databases. He then went on and generated all those mutations by introducing them in the exact same exon affected in those patients. And he made a number of control lines, such as, for example, cell lines that would have modifications of a gene that is not expressed at all in the brain, but it's only expressed in the kidney. Or then again, genes that are involved in the wind signaling pathway, because again, that's something we were interested in the context of studying in, aut in autism. Now I'm going to spare you all the details. And again, this is published, the details, if you want, so you can go look at all of that. So that was actually the most difficult part. It's really the extensive QC you need to do to make this work, because you can think of many problems that could occur. For example, people who grow stem cells, they know easily that some stem cell lines might just grow faster or slower. So it's very important to show that you can do that. And they showed you can do it at least for about six to ten passages, which is enough to make many thousandfold expansions and make very large stocks of pools that we mixed in 30 different of those lines. They made 30 independent, uh, made three independent pools of those 30 lines. And again, for those who really want to go into the characterization, we also did made different pools in different combinations. But I'm going to spare you all those details. But important to say is you can freeze-saw the cells. You can check, again, that they don't have any obvious mutations that could, again, mess up the, the distribution in an artificial way. So once we had basically the pooling done, the next question is, can we get the relevant cell type? So again, Gustav wanted to not just make cortical cells, but he wanted to see, can he actually make prefrontal cortex cells? And so again, this is a very interesting problem by itself. Can you actually make the different regions of the early cortex uh, in a pattern, by, by appropriate patterning? And we showed in this study that by the right combination, particularly of FGF8, in a very timed manner, you can show that you can not only get the same number of PAC6 and FOXG1 cells, which labels those cells as cortical cells, but you can actually toggle them to be either positive for CUPTF1, which is the posterior region, or for SP8, which is the anterior region. And we actually did not just use those two markers, but we used a whole set of markers that we then mapped back again onto the Allen Brain Atlas, where we had again data from prefrontal versus occipital cortex. 
and then showed that we actually get a very good correlation from the in vitro ratios of PFC to occipital cortex versus the in vivo ratio of those two markers, indicating that indeed this is now a protocol we can use to bias towards prefrontal cortex. Now the next question is if we can make prefrontal cortex, which cells are we going to study within prefrontal cortex-like region? So we wanted to look again at neurogenesis defect. So here for the non-neuroscientists in the lab, on the audience here, there are different populations that are critical. So there's the stem cell compartment, radioglia, SOX2, PAC6 positive. There's the IPC, intermediate progenitor cell, and there's the actual neurons. And so again, what you would then predict if you have now this autism rate mutation shifting the neurogenesis process, you would see shifts in the ratio of those cell types. So the way we designed that is again, we take the pool, we take it to day 20, we take it to day 45 on the prefrontal cortex uh, differentiation conditions. Then we pull out the continuous stem cells, the intermediate progenitor and the neurons, and we look at the distribution of the alleles. Again, I'm not going to go through all the various combinations that we did. You can imagine the many different ways you can sort and compare. But one of the most obvious one is that there is indeed a clear, what we call class one set of genes that has a problem to undergo neurogenesis that's all represented in the stem cell compartment. So if you look what's enriched SOX2 versus all cells, or what's depleted in the neurons versus stem cells, you see this blue group, which we call class one, but there's also a class two gene, and there's obviously many genes that are not affected, that are the same as, for example, this UMOR gene, that's when mutate not even expressed in the brain. Now we did a lot of validations, again, different pools, and maybe the most obvious validation is you can actually go back to each cell line alone for that phenotype, and you see indeed that they capture pretty much all the cell types very, very nicely that were here identified in our assay. Now, interestingly, many of those class 1 genes seem to be involved in the regulation of polycoms, so they might have, uh, again, an important role in the epigenetic control of how cells respond to certain developmental signals. We'll come back to that in, in, in a slide in a minute. But again, before we get there, one important point was, again, a lot of validation. Because one thing that we were surprised is that we actually found a large proportion of the genes that had, basically, uh, mutant phenotypes. So you want to make sure that this doesn't happen just for any phenotype. So one way you can do that is just simply looking what happens at the distribution of just simply, for example, for, for cortical induction. Well, you look at cortical induction, there was not a single one of those mutations that reached a significant difference in their ability to make cortical cells, except kind of a positive control, which was the beta-catenin mutation here. That's shown here. In contrast, for the PFC phenotype, we had a large number of genes that actually had a phenotype, shown here also for yet another phenotype. So the question then is again, if maybe some of those genes, at least the class 1 gene, might be involved in epigenetic regulation, they might in fact determine how a cell responds to an extrinsic signal, such as a wind signal. And wind signaling was attractive because wind signals can be very important for the proliferation of stem cells, but they're also very important for neurogenesis, for making the neurons. So they have two different roles, and then the question is again, what really determines whether you go here or here? That's basically, the, the, at least to some extent, the chromatin state of the cell and transcriptional co-regulators. Now, wind signaling was also interesting because it was identified as a node point in some of those autism gene-related networks, just simply based on the gene networks. Now, what we did here is, again, a very simple assay. We take the PFC differentiation, but now we treat the cells either with wind activation or without wind activation, and we look for phenotypes. For example, we look whether we see an effect on the proliferation resulting in more SOX2 cells. If we do that, we indeed find a number of genes that have, for example, an abnormal response, so meaning they don't really get an increase in SOX2 cells in response to that wind stimulus. Now, interestingly, the ones that had that phenotype, which is shown here, they were also the cell lines that didn't really properly respond to some of that neurogenic stimulus. And that was initially maybe a little bit confusing because you can say if you actually have more SOX2 positive cells, you would think you have more precursors. They might respond more to wind signaling. They should have even more SOX2 cells. But what we actually think happens is that those mutations already lead to an abnormal sensitivity to the wind signaling pathway that even without much stimulation, you get the SOX2 compartment expanded, neurogenesis blocked, and additional 
wind signaling really doesn't uh, basically have a major effect on those cells. Now again, coming back to wind signaling, obviously if there is a problem in wind signaling response, you would expect there might be other phenotypes in those cells. And one tissue, I think Evan mentioned in the introduction, that we are also very passionate about is the neurocrest. It's again a very wind-dependent tissue for induction, and we can easily have some of our protocols again making wind-dependent neurocrest precursors easily. So we then took the same pooled population and see that we also see problems in neurocrest specification. And we saw indeed for our cranial neurocrest protocol, which is shown here, we see that actually a very similar set of genes had a problem in making neurocrest. So first you can say maybe that's actually a little bit strange. I mean, it's autism and there's not really a neurocrest disease, so, so why would that be? But actually thinking a little bit more about that, it turns out, and some of you might know that, that actually many of the facial structures, cartilage and bone, here, they're actually derived from the cranial neurocrest. So whether you have a very beautiful face of a model or a very horrible face of a Frankenstein, you have to blame your neurocrest. And what you see here is, again, that particularly the frontal bones are derived from the cranial neurocrest. And so the question then is, could that actually be a phenotype? And intriguingly, if you actually go back and look at patients that have these class 1 genes mutated, they all have a very unusual facial physiognomy, indicating that this could actually be an actual phenotype. Now, this is, again, just correlation. So we were wondering, can we actually do more causation for this cranial neurocrest phenotype? That's shown here, where we now went actually into a zebrafish embryo, where we can study this in vivo. So by uh, single cell uh, stage 1 injection of CRISPR constructs, we could actually now perturb our class 1 genes in those uh, embryos and study basically the, the facial development, in this case actually development of the palate. So this is the palate of a fish. And again, I had to learn about that. I'm clearly not an expert in, in cranial neurocrest development in the fish. There's actually a very neat system where you can easily quantify this by these two fractions, the width and the length of the palate, uh, phenotypes, for example, wind-dependent phenotypes. And then when we did that in a blinded assessment manner, we found that the large majority of those class 1 genes indeed caused craniofacial phenotype in the zebrafish in vivo, suggesting this might not just be a correlation, but it might actually be the cause of these craniofacial changes in those kids. Now, kind of the, the final point then was really, I mean, if we have the system, can we now use that to actually cluster our patient population? I just showed you some of the phenotypes in my presentation, but we had a total of seven different phenotypes in addition to, to prefrontal cortex neurogenesis. And so we tried to cluster them and basically came up with a cluster A, which contains most of those uh, uh, class 1 genes, and the cluster B, shown here. And then the question is, now, can we now take that and actually go potentially back to patients? Now, when we tried to do that, we basically focused on the Simons Foundation clinical database that has quite a, an extensive clinical data set that's available, and including patients that, again, belong to these cluster A mutations, the cluster B mutations, other de novo mutations that are neither A or B, or just simply idiopathic controls. And they have a lot of, again, additional data on that. And what we first found that in some of the measures, again, in autism, classically, you have repetitive behavior. You have, in some of the patients, a, a, a drop in IQ. Those were not changed at all. But what we found is if you, again, match that by IQ and by other factors in a very careful way, uh, statistically, we found that, indeed, there might be some difference in the category which is called communication. And again, this was very intriguing because it was a very robust phenotype where we compared normal language development in a typical child compared to this black curve language development in an average autism child. We find actually that cluster A mutations are partially protected, so they have better than expected language development, while cluster B have worse than expected language development. If you then look what that means with regard to the actual genes, we find that most of that is driven by this class 1, the neurogenesis defect gene uh, versus class 2 gene, the over-neurogenesis uh, effect genes. And if you then go into individual categories, and again, I'm not going to go through all of that, we can actually see very specific categories that are quite dramatically worse in the cluster B kids compared to the cluster A kids. Or again, where we see that 
the cluster A kids are partially protected compared to cluster B or compared to an average, uh, again, average de novo mutation population in autism. So again, this was very intriguing. Obviously, there's a big gap now to know how you go from a neurogenesis defect to a defect in language development, and we don't really claim to have understood that at all. But it's intriguing that we can see such unexpected correlations purely on data generated from our stem cell model, and again, then use what we call these endophenotypes in a dish to actually clinical phenotypes to, to get subgroups of patient populations that might give us meaningful insights into maybe potentially the mechanism of the disease and ideally in the future, potentially even the treatment of the disease. So what I'll show you then in the second story is really that we have now developed this pooled stem cell platform, proof of concept with the 30 uh, autism lines that we can define a neurogenesis phenotype within the prefrontal cortex differentiation protocol, that it seems to be related to abnormal wind response, and that we can now use those information together with other phenotypes, starting to stratify uh, autism patient populations and see again where this helps us to ultimately better understand the disease. Just maybe a final uh, two slides for the outlook. There's basically a system, I think, that we think is going to be very versatile for the future. On the one hand, we started now using similar approaches for studying neurodegenerative disease. For getting Parkinson's, you can make basically pooled lines of all the uh, basically genetic forms, familiar forms of PD, for example, or AD in the same way, and then study again in one swoop all the defects that you might have and how they are related among each other. You can also do that with sporadic disease, and again, there are very interesting tools to actually start doing that, but you use not simply the mutation as the mark for the readout, which is what we used. And we have basically this DDPCR that would detect this very specific mutation, but you can actually use directly DNA sequencing readouts, or even transcriptional readout by single cell-based sequencing, where you can actually have changes in gene expression for each of the patient populations mapped to each of the cell type in a single cell profile. Again, some of that work is also done now by other groups. There's some interesting work by Kevin Egan, Stephen McCorrell that do that at a very large scale now for other diseases. And I think that's again, if you're interested, there is a bioarchive uh, article and I'm sure there's more publications gonna come out for that, that approach. But again, even within the autism approach, what we try to do is now go beyond just the system that I showed you, the prefrontal cortex neurogenesis, we develop, for example, connectivity assays, where we can look at these pooled assays to see whether you actually have for defects in presynaptic connectivity. We look at the interneuron specification, the changes in, in gliogenesis, or for example, microglial pruning, where some of those genes might actually be involved as well, or other genes might be involved. And we might be able to have good assays to again cluster those. And finally, you can also be much more versatile with regard to the genetic approach. What we did, is we try to target exact exon where these patients have those mutations, trying to mimic the mutations, but in an isogenic context. We also have started to make an isogenic copy number variations, so deletions or duplications, and have developed optimized CRISPR tools to do that. But obviously, an ultimate goal here is to do that also for polygenic risk, where you use the actual genetics of each patient as the mark of the genetic mutation. And that's also again a technique that becomes more and more possible. And again, the reference that I made you to this paper before from Kevin Egan and Steve McCarroll, that's one of the studies that has shown that. But there are several groups that show again at least technically how to do this. And finally, it's also an interesting question, now if you have a very defined, very strong mutation, why in some cases that mutation causes autism? In another case, another family seems to cause, for example, schizophrenia or other diseases. Can we do that? Can we introduce that mutation to specific genetic backgrounds, and then use that to then figure out other background-related mutations that might be really critical to have one versus another phenotype. So that's basically then the end of my uh, second story and the end of my overall presentation. And it leaves me then to thank some of the key people in the lab who are responsible for the work. The work that I present today was really led by two very talented people, Zuda Gutikonda, a graduate student who led the triculture system. That was the first story. And Gustav Sedequist, another graduate student who basically led the work on the multiplex approach in the context of autism. They have to obviously thank many collaborators and funding agencies that made this work possible. And at this stage, I think I'm going to stop here. 
and we'll be very happy to take any questions you might have. Hi, well, that was, that was fantastic, Lorenz. And, and in fact, the questions are starting to come in, and almost all of them are prefaced with fantastic talk. So I won't compliment you with each question. I'll just cut to the chase. Um, the uh, first, first question comes from uh, Shahid Khalid, and he would like to know, uh, and you may have addressed this, but I'll give you a chance to, uh, to speak about it a bit more. What methods do you use to ensure that IPS cell lines are reliable? For example, reducing uh, the percentage of SNP variations seen between and even within homologous IPS cell lines. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a, in general a very important question. I don't think there's an absolute perfect recipe, no, all the way from thinking how do you use cells clinically, do you use them in, in, some, in an isogenic context. I think what we are mostly worried about are obviously mutations such as mutations in p53 or other genes that cause major effects, for example, even in this multiplex approach in general. But, but in general, so we definitely, I don't think we have a, a perfect recipe you know, that I could give you. In fact, we have a lot of discussions now as part of the ASAP consortium. How deep you want to go and how do you want to have whole genome sequencing, which is obviously very nice to do. And we've done for many of those cell lines that we're going to use. But then how often are you going to repeat that no, over time? And I don't think there's a perfect method. So we have relatively high throughput techniques where every 10 passages, we basically look uh, typically by karyotype or there are also certain uh, PCR-based methods that you can look at the most worrisome mutations that occur. And then again, we try to have a very good system where we don't go to very high passages in our cell lines. But I would say, again, there is no absolute perfect way to QC your cell line to be absolute sure that you have the phenotype. And that's why it's so important to have validation. So you need to have independent clones to do that. You need to do gene correction and even correction of the mutations again in some of the cases to ultimately confirm what the phenotype is that you have. Because I think without that, you can never be 100% sure knowing every single cell to have that. Even if your cell line is perfect, there are examples but maybe you get the mutations only when the stem cells have differentiated at the neural precursor stage. No? So it's, it's kind of nearly an endless thing. And so that's why it's a combination of having a very good QC, but also very good additional validation for any phenotypes you actually ultimately define. Uh, the next question uh, wants to know, have, have you actually used some IPS lines derived from actual autism patients? And do they show autism phenotypes similar to what you've demonstrated in and what you just spoke about in your experimental system? So we have done it for a number of lines. I think maybe a total of five lines where we were basically able to confirm that this actual autism, uh, autism from those specific mutations. And again, we talk about autism. It's a bit tricky thing, but it's really a syndromic form of autism that sometimes has other, other basic phenotypes, which some of those mutations clearly hard that we have that is very high, have this very high phenotypic effect. But together with the Simons Foundation, you now we tried to get, they are still discussing you now from how many they actually need to do that. They started making IPS lines from those mutations, partly kind of uh, in, in discussions that we have with them. Now that's obviously a very important tool to have. And in general, we could really validate them quite nicely. We have also validations of actually mouse models. In mouse models, I think we had, for, for which mouse models are available, we had about the 80 or 90% validation rate. Not all of them would validate, but then for those that don't validate, we actually don't know whether that's a mouse versus human specific phenotype, or again, how to actually interpret some of those phenotypes in the context of a whole mouse. So it's still, I think, a challenge, which I think is a challenge in the pluripotent stem cell field in general. If you find a phenotype that seems to be maybe human-specific or unique. How do you know it's human-specific versus kind of artifactual? And so again, you need to kind of do all these validations we said before, have patient lines, but even there, you no, know, the patients might have a more mild form of it. So again, for, for all the diseases, which are quite different than what you have here, we have done it in much more detail, you know, where we then have hypomorph versions, we have more severe patients for the same mutations, we have the isogenic knockouts. So there are cases where we need that systematically, but here, at this stage, we haven't done it for all the 30, you know, for obvious reasons, because it's obviously a lot, a lot of work. But it's something, again, we would like to do, and ideally, what would be really nice is to use it as a testing ground to then also show that we can do that 
together with the genetic background defects in those patients. Now you see that you can model those on top of the actual mutations that they have. Great. Uh, the next question uh, suggests that it looks as if your system can apply to a wide range of genetic conditions. And uh, the questioner was wondering whether you, you or others are or have applied this to other genetic conditions such as Huntington's disease. And, and could it be applied to something like that? Yes, yeah, so we haven't really done it in Huntington's disease. I mean, I know there is obviously a possibility of doing it with different uh, repeat numbers. Uh, I know our colleague just across the street, you know, Ali Ahmed made many, many lines that are basically isogenic, have all the different repeat lengths. You could do it in an isogenic context within one pool and see exactly where it breaks off, for example. Do you see like clustering from a certain uh, length of copy numbers with regard to the development of phenotypes or other phenotypes? But you could also do it obviously from across different genotypes. We haven't done it for Huntington's disease. The area where we've started doing it is again in Parkinson's disease. So that's something we've started developing some of those tools. And again, we are also very interested to do it in just simply sporadic lines to, 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 to test fundamentally, you know, ideally in actually AD sporadic lines to kind of go back to some of our early studies, where we can do that in a way to, to, to find phenotypes that are, that are relevant, but actually look at polygenic risk. I think that's fundamentally the goal there, no? because in many cases it's the case that you don't really know this one mutation. There is no one mutation in many Parkinson's patients. You know, people have looked long enough that maybe 5%, if you are optimistic, but that's the case, 5 to 10%. In most cases, it's a polygenic risk. And so this is clearly a system that ultimately might be among the most useful for determining polygenic risk and which gene is actually most critical for that. And I think that's a technology that's now getting developed. But the problem there is that it's technically more challenging. It's not much more challenging to come out with readouts that actually can done and the pipelines have been developed. How you detect the mutation or which, if you had my cells versus your cells or someone else's cells, we could easily see that once they are mixed, who is who. Very easy, even by RNA-seq, you could do it for the same transcript you can distinguish. But the problem is really that each of our cell lines would grow at slightly different rates. Much more than if you do that in an isogenic setting like we have done for targeting the exact same exon in the patient. And so that's a little bit of a challenge and that's what people are working on right now. And again, maybe better culture systems can reduce some of that variability. What Kevin Egan and colleagues seem to do is they actually just simply mix them only at the end point. They don't actually grow the stems. They make all the stems as separate, but they mix them only once they are neurons. But then there's not much proliferation happening. So that's another way you can minimize that risk, but it makes it actually logistically much less easy than for us because we, once you make the pool, it's really kind of beautiful. You, making the pool is not easy, but once you have the pool, you can just expand it, you can freeze it down, you just take it, you have your whole autism village in a dish, you differentiate, you can do it again and again. It's really quite easy. If you always have to like remix them for every experiment, that's actually one of the toughest parts. So we will see again how broadly it's applicable. But again, I don't have a completely satisfactory answer. But clearly people are doing it in the context of schizophrenia. They do it in the context of spinal muscular atrophy. I've seen some efforts. We do it in the context of Parkinson's disease. So we think it's eventually going to be very widely useful. Uh, the next question is, uh, does your system allow you to study the influence of environmental factors? For example, stress or epigenetic uh, changes in the, in the embryo? Yeah, so that's clearly much more challenging with that system for obvious reasons, if you think about it, because we, most of our readouts are based on the actual cell that we study. You know, it's a cell autonomous effect that has to be studied. Now you can, what you can do is you can expose them. And again, that's where you actually merge the two studies that I told you. So where you now actually have, for example, a stimulus is an astrocyte or something like that, that you now put that an inflammatory signal, for example, and now you can see how each of the neurons responds to that. That you can easily do. But what's more tricky is if the mutation itself causes the difference initially. For example, let's say if the mutation causes the disease by secreting a secreted factor. Let's say it secretes, a, let's say, a complement factor. No? Let's say the mutation you want to study secretes more complement. So then actually it's a bit of a problem because now the complement is going to affect all the cells around. And so now they're all going to basically respond to that in a certain way. So we actually made a lot of 
control experiments to make sure that it doesn't mess up things. There's no autonomous effect. So we did different pools, see that we get the same results. How we mix them, because what happens, again, it distributes it to all the cells. So all cells are roughly the same way affected. So then it kind of evens it out, but you don't detect the effect. So if you want to study those non-cell autonomous effects, for example, what we are doing there is, again, we just flip around kind of the conditions where we then uh, look, look uh, basically at, at an assay that specifically looks at those factors. And again, could go into more detail, so you can design it such, but it needs to be specifically designed for that purpose. In its way it's presented right now, it really is good at detecting cell autonomous effect. It can be used for non-cell autonomous effect by making different pools, but it's kind of clunky. So again, if you want to really use cell uh, non-autonomous effect, you need to kind of take the first story, some creative combinations to really get that integrated into the system on top of that. Um, that's great. I, I think it's also great that you peeled back the curtain a little bit to, to share the complexities of using these systems. I think that some of the, the multiple variables are underestimated by the people entering the field. So thanks so much for that, Lorenz. Uh, we're starting to run out of time. It's been great having you. Hopefully you'll be able to, now that California is in the orange tier and we're all vaccinated, and I encourage the, everybody in the audience to get vaccinated, hopefully we can entertain you again out here in person shortly. Um, I did uh, want to take the opportunity to thank some of the people that are so responsible for having the Southern California Stem Cell Consortium happen every month so, so seamlessly and making it global. And so I want to acknowledge Jake Banfield-Weir and Marcy Murray and Tija Owens, who really make all of this possible, and the entire UCSD uh, audiovisual TV staff. And uh, we'll continue these global Zoom uh, opportunities to meet with stars in the stem cell field uh, throughout. I think we'll continue in this way from now on. Thanks so much, Lorenz, and we'll see you all next month. Bye-bye. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.